Let me pray as parents come back and grab your seats. Uh, It'd be really good to have uh, that passage from Revelation chapter 2 open. Uh, It's in the Connect card. Uh, You might uh, have an actual Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's always Bibles on your way in. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to buy you one. You can take one. If you don't have a Bible at all, just keep one from here. We're very happy for you to do that. Uh, and, uh, or you can download a whole bunch of apps. But it's really important to have the Bible in front of you. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at this uh, passage from Revelation chapter 2. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray uh, that you would help us to concentrate, uh, to be attentive to your word, to uh, hear it and trust it and obey it. Uh, Please, Father, help me to be clear and faithful uh, and and help us, Lord, to uh, not just hear this, your word, as mere kind of information uh, in our heads, but as uh, transforming words to our hearts. Uh, For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, So one of my great joys in being a minister is that I get to marry people. Uh, It's a great thing. Uh, I love spending time with uh, two people uh, who clearly really love each other. Uh, You know, these people, you can see it in the way they talk to one another, uh, the the way they're still holding hands, uh, the way they do maybe a a little touch on the the shoulder or a a little whisper in the ear, a little giggle here and there. Uh, They're they're really in love. It's a little bit vomitous maybe, Uh, but no, no, it's not not really like that. It's uh, it's wonderful. Uh, They're in love, and I really do like spending time uh, with these couples who are in love. Uh, But the the tragic thing is uh, that not all those couples stay like that. That's the hard reality, isn't it, uh, of the the world we live in? With the pressures of life, with the uh, damage of sin, with the the breaking of promises, and many of those marriages that I've just described, they start out like that, uh, and yet they end up almost completely loveless. Often it's not that there's nothing good about the relationship at all, We know this. These couples often work well together in parenting. They perhaps encourage one another in their careers. They're actively involved in their church, their school, their sporting club. There's there's lots of activity, lots of work, lots of sacrifice. But when you look deeper at their actual relationship, they've grown hard-hearted and cold and just loveless, really. It's very, very sad. Uh, but as, uh, really, as sad as that is, as, as horrible as it is, uh, it's actually nothing compared to the tragedy of a church. Right? The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. So it's nothing compared to the tragedy of a church, the bride of Christ forsaking its love for him. A church, perhaps, that looks okay on the outside... Lots of stuff going on, lots of activity and work and sacrifice. But when you look deeper, you discover that their hearts are far from God. They're hard-hearted and cold and loveless. And that's really what we're looking at today. Christ's letter to the church in Ephesus is a letter to a loveless church. Before we look at the details of this letter, I want us to answer two questions about these letters to the seven churches in general. The first question is, is who are these letters written to? I answered this briefly in my first sermon on Revelation. I said from chapter 1, verse 4, that most immediately these seven letters are written to seven churches in the province of Asia. That's not Asia as we know it, like China and Japan and stuff. It's modern-day Western Turkey. That's the province of Asia. Uh, But it's it's broader than these seven churches. 
uh, because these seven churches weren't all the churches in the province of Asia. Right? There are a whole lot of other churches in, in Colossae, in Herapolis, Troas, Magnesia, uh, like all sorts of other churches. Right? So these seven churches, there are actually representative churches. Uh, so why choose the number seven? Why choose seven churches? Because in Jewish tradition, the number seven symbolizes fullness. It's completeness, like the seventh day completes the week, you see. So the, the number seven uh, symbolizes the completeness, not, uh, sorry, these seven churches symbolize the completeness of Christ's church, not just in the province of Asia, uh, but throughout, uh, in all times and in all places. Right? They, they symbolize all the churches between Christ's first and second coming. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because it means we should understand these letters in three main ways. Right? The first way we should understand them is locally. Well, we've got to believe that these are seven uh, real letters written to seven real churches addressing seven real issues. Right? We've got to understand them locally. But second, we've got to understand them uh, universally because these seven churches represent the, the fullness of Christ's church. So these seven letters are a bit like a mirror that we can look into to kind of examine our own church. Because they give us a taste of the kind of issues that churches in all times and all places might struggle with between Christ's first and second coming. And of course the third way we should read these letters is personally. But even though the letters are written primarily to churches... Uh, Christ calls individuals in these churches to respond over and over again. In verse 7 of today's passage, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? He's calling individuals in the church to hear and trust and obey his word. So that's, that's the kind of the big picture of these letters. Uh, they're written to seven local churches, uh, to Christ's universal church, and really to you as a part of Christ's church? That's the first question. The second question uh, is, how are the letters structured? Uh, you'll see from my outline today, maybe it's a bit boring, uh, but uh, each of the letters really follow, follows the same structure, uh, pretty much, and it's summarised with these five C's. Uh, the first part of every letter is that it's introduced with a particular characteristic of Christ. Right, the characteristic uh, usually comes straight out of John's vision of Christ back in chapter 1. We looked at that last week. Uh, and the characteristic in every letter is deliberately chosen uh, to address the specific issues going on in the church. Right, it's not just random. Uh, so there's this characteristic of Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Christ gives every church a compliment, except Laodicea. Uh, is there something going on with this mic? Sorry, it's hitting against my face. Anyway, so uh, he gives every church a compliment uh, except for Laodicea. That's a pretty horrible thought, isn't it? Uh, we'll get to Laodicea in, in several weeks, but uh, imagine being part of a church that Christ can't even find one thing to compliment. Pretty scathing. Uh, but typically, Christ gives every church a compliment. Oh, on the flip side, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, uh, he gives every church a criticism, a characteristic, a compliment, a criticism. Fourth, uh, he gives every church a command. Right? That's usually to correct his main criticism of the church. Uh, and fifth, 
Uh, he gives every church his commitment, right? That's his, his promise that all who truly hear his words and persevere in faith will overcome, will be victorious. Right? A, a characteristic of Christ, followed by a compliment, a criticism, and a command to the church, and then Christ's commitment to his people. So now let's look at, at how we see each of those five C's in this letter to Ephesus. Uh, first, have a look at verse 1. Uh, in verse 1, we see that this characteristic of Christ. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, a, a couple of intro things. I, I dealt with the question of these angels last week. Uh, but briefly, for those who weren't here, uh, these angels, they're either heavenly beings, uh, he- actual heavenly beings, or they're pastors. Because pa- uh, the word angel means a messenger of God. Right? So in this context, I, I think it's probably pastors. Not because I don't believe in angels, uh, but because I think it makes most sense that, uh, that John receives these letters. Uh, he passes them on to the pastors of the church who then read them to their church. Uh, We also see in verse 1, you can see it there, uh, that this letter is written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus, it's not the capital of the province of Asia. That's Pergamon. We'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, But Ephesus really was the most important city in Asia, the most influential one. We know about that in Australia, right? Canberra's our capital, but probably not the most influential city, right? Melbourne, of course. Uh, but anyway, but, uh, so forgive me. it's the most important city, uh, but first because it was a commercial centre, right? right on the sea, uh, it was a very large commercial centre. Uh, also, it was a religious centre because it was home to the, uh, what was called the ancient temple of Artemis. We'll hear more about that in a bit, a, a kind of Greek goddess. Uh, and this ancient temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Ephesus uh, was a religious centre. It was also a cultural centre uh, because it had uh, what was called the Library of Celsus, uh, which uh, you've probably never heard of, but it's a massive theatre. Uh, could seat up to 25,000 people. As you can see, like Ephesus was a very influential city, a very important city. Uh, and that's why Ephesus was a big priority for the early church. Uh, if you read the book of Acts, you'll, you'll see, particularly Acts 19, uh, Paul spent nearly three years in Ephesus establishing this church. That's quite a long time compared to other places. Uh, key leaders, like uh, you might have heard of some of these people uh, in reading the Bible, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Timothy, and Nisiphorus, Tychicus. Right? All those early influential Christian leaders uh, spent significant time in Ephesus. And of course, the Apostle John, who's writing this letter, spent 30 years in Ephesus before the, the Romans put him in jail on Patmos, where he's receiving these letters. So Ephesus was a very influential city and it had a very influential church. Very important. But notice Christ in verse 1. We're told that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We saw last week in chapter 1 verse 20, you can flick back if you've, if you've got a Bible, but these seven stars, uh, Jesus tells us, are the seven angels of the churches. But I, I'm saying pastors. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So if you look at this picture, we've got Christ uh, really exactly where we might expect him, exactly where he should be. 
Are the leaders of his church are in his right hand. What does that mean? It tells us that, that through the, the shepherds of his flock, Christ is going to support and protect and bless his people. And Christ himself, by the power of his spirit, is walking among his churches. So he can care for them, so he can strengthen them, so he can guide them and correct them. And remember that what we've got here with this picture of a lampstand uh, is a picture of the temple. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, uh, that there was a lampstand in the Jewish temple. And so the picture we have here is that Christ is our great high priest, the one who mediates between us and God, who enables us to relate to God. Right? Christ is our great high priest, and, and he's walking in the midst of his lampstand. And what we saw last week was that the, uh, the priest in the Old Testament, part of their job as a priest uh, was to tend to the lampstand. That was part of their job. They had to look after it. Uh, they had to trim the lampstand and remove old wicks in the lampstand and replace oil and, uh, and relight candles. Maybe even remove a lampstand altogether if it wasn't serving its purpose anymore. Likewise, Christ, as our great high priest, is walking among his lampstands. Right, his churches, and in these seven letters, he's going to tend to his churches. Sometimes he'll compliment them, but often he's going to correct and rebuke and 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 purify his churches. He's going to say some hard words, but he's doing that so that they're fit to keep fulfilling the purpose that he's called them to—to to shine the light of his glory in his world. So I wonder if you believe this truth, that even today, by the power of his Spirit, Christ himself is among us. Here today, at the Arabian Presbyterian Church, Christ is here to tend to us as his church, to examine us, to strengthen us, to correct us, to purify us for our good and for his glory. Christ is among his lampstands. And what does Christ say to this church in Ephesus? Well, first, he compliments them. In verse 2, have a look at it there. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. That's a common theme throughout all these letters. Christ is always saying, I know, I know, I know. He's always saying that. And you remember back to chapter 1, the vision that John had of Christ, and there he was with his blazing eyes. But it was a picture of the fact that Christ could see everything, and so he knows everything. And here we see that Christ knows the deeds of the Ephesians. And that's in a good way, right? That's an encouragement, both to them and to you, I hope. But I'm sure some of you feel like you're serving away in life, maybe even in this church, and that no one notices anything that you do. So be assured that Christ notices. He knows your deeds. He sees your deeds. And notice that the Ephesians are really committed to their deeds, to their service. They, they work hard, we're told. That's a picture for, for hard labor, for toil, even to the point of exhaustion. Right? You're getting a picture of this church. This is a church where there are... <coughs> There, where there are no passengers, right? There's no one who comes and just, just sits on a seat and is entertained and, and just consumes. Like everyone's engaged and actively serving in some way. 
And their service uh, is hard, it's, it's exhausting even, and it's not sporadic. Right? They don't only serve when it's convenient for them. Because you notice Christ sees the, the perseverance in their service. And so Christ compliments them for their service. Uh, he also compliments them for their attitude to false teachers and teaching. I notice he, he says there, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people uh, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Uh, if you read uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, you'll know that when Paul was getting uh, to the end of his time in Ephesus, uh, just before he left, uh, he had a little meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. Uh, and in that, he warned them uh, that when he left, savage wolves, right, false teachers, uh, would come into their church and seek to destroy the flock. That was his great warning to them, one of his warnings. And so it seems that those elders and the elders that followed on from them really hated Paul's warning. This was a church that took sound doctrine very seriously. They tested all teaching, they loved good teaching, solid teaching, and they rejected all false teaching and the false teachers who gave it. And we see that down in verse 6 too. Christ says... Uh, You have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a compliment, right? To to be a church that that truly hates something that Christ hates. That's that's a compliment. So so, so why is it that that Christ and the Ephesians hate the the practices of of these Nicolaitans so much? Well, the truth is... uh, It's hard to know exactly, right? Because uh, this verse and down in verse 15 uh, are the only times the Nicolaitans are mentioned in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible, right? So there's not a lot of detail uh, about them. Uh, But uh, it seems, reading between the lines, that the Nicolaitans were saying that uh, maybe a little bit of compromise with sin or a compromise with idolatry uh, was really no big deal. Like, don't get too caught up about it. I remember I said earlier that Ephesus is home to that, that great temple of Artemis. Right? It's a massive temple. It employed uh, thousands of priests, uh, priestesses too. Uh, lots of trades in the city uh, were specifically connected to the temple. Uh, so to a large extent, uh, the economy of the entire city depended on that temple. And that's why in Acts 19, when Paul first planted this church in Ephesus, uh, Luke records this. Let me read from Acts 19, verse 23. This is what Luke says. He says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. That's that's the way of Christianity. Uh, A silversmith, notice he's a tradie, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Uh, He called them together, uh, along with the workers in related trades, and said this, right? This is one of the earliest union meetings. Right, trade union meeting, here it is. Uh, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Uh, There is danger, oh no, he's very sympathetic to Artemis here. Uh, There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be discredited and and shall be robbed of her divine majesty. 
And when they heard this, the crowd were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. And it goes on to talk about a riot in the city. Right? You can imagine that, that if you're a part of this church in Ephesus, uh, there's a fair bit of pressure. A fair bit of pressure to go along to the temple, uh, to perform your duties uh, and to contribute to the economy. No big deal. Either that's what the Nicolaitans said, just do it. It's for the good of everyone. But the Ephesians said no. The Ephesians said we hate that because it's, it's blasphemy, it's heresy. We're not going to worship Artemis. You're starting to get a picture of this church in Ephesus. The Ephesians were thoroughly orthodox. If they had a heresy radar, it was on high alert, right? Like even the slightest whiff, it was like, beep, 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 beep. Like they were on to heresy. And so Christ compliments them for that. Compliments them for their commitment to service, for their commitment to sound teaching, and for their rejection of false teaching. Very complimentary. But of course, he moves quickly from compliments to criticism. In verse 4, Yet I hold this against you, Christ says. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And maybe a bit unexpected. Here's a church that's thoroughly orthodox, that's passionate about the truth, sacrificial in its service. And yet Christ sees behind all that activity, that hard work, that sacrifice, and he sees hearts that are cold and hard and, and loveless. The love they had when they first became Christians for Christ, for one another, for the lost in their city, is gone. The honeymoon period's over. I said earlier that uh, the relationship between Christ and the church is often compared to a marriage in the Bible. And this is like lots of marriages, isn't it? Uh, you, you start out and you're really in love, right? You're right there in that honeymoon period. Lots of affection, uh, lots of uh, incidental communication throughout the day, just cause, lots of random acts of kindness for no particular reason. You, you can't wait to see one another. Uh, you, you're always kind of locking in quality time to spend with one another. Like you, you, You're in love. Uh, but then maybe your, your career takes off or your ministry gets really busy or you build that house, you have that new project, you, you introduce a few kids into the mix, life throws all sorts of other pressures your way uh, and all of a sudden you find that you and your spouse are, are, are busy doing lots of tasks, lots of activity, lots of sacrifice, lots of toil, but there's not much love. Uh, perhaps physical affection is gone or on the way out. A desire to spend time to, uh, with one another uh, is also decreasing. Uh, there's not much communication unless it's about specific tasks concerned with keeping the house ticking over. In some ways, that's a picture of the Ephesians' relationship with Christ. Lots of activity, lots of work, lots of sacrifice, but not much love. I wonder if that could be said of us, of Darabin Presbyterian Church. Has our love for Christ, for one another, for our city, has it, has it dissipated? Are we a loveless church? Look into this mirror. I don't think we are. 
Let me encourage you. I think we're doing pretty well. But I do think there's something we have to hear here, right? Because Christ calls us to love him uh, with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Right? What we tend to do is give the love of our hearts to other things, right? even very good things. That, that seems to be what's happening in Ephesus. It seems that they're giving the love of their hearts, uh, amongst things, but uh, to pursuing biblical truth. They just loved orthodox theology and sound doctrine and faithful teaching. Right? And those, those are wonderful things to love. A church should love those things. But somehow in the midst of that, for their church in Ephesus, uh, Christ had been pushed to the margins of their heart. And so they had lots of knowledge about Christ, but little love for Christ. And that's not me saying that, that's Christ saying that. I think that's something we have to be aware of, in part because I think it's something I have to be aware of. And over time, for better or for worse, churches tend to take the shape of their pastor. A little bit about my story is that between the ages of 17 and 21, uh, some pretty formative years in my faith, I attended what I sometimes affectionately call a Baptocostal church. Uh, it was, uh, there was lots of passion and love and worship, uh, but it was probably light on, on truth. Uh, so during that period, I, had, I really did have a deep uh, love for Christ, uh, but there wasn't a lot of depth to it, right? because my love for Christ uh, wasn't shaped by the truth of the Bible. Right? I did love Christ, but, but really I loved my own version of Christ, because I, I didn't have much idea of how Christ was described in the Bible. And then I got married, I moved to Melbourne and I started attending a Presbyterian church and there I was exposed to, to a depth of biblical truth that I'd never experienced before. Right? I lapped it up. But after a few years, I felt that I was losing my love for Christ. It was like I'd replaced my love for Christ with a passionate love for truth, for uh, the Bible. And I know some of you might be a bit nervous about this, right? Uh, but I do think there's a danger here. right? As a, as a Presbyterian church, we tend to love, like the church in Ephesus, sound doctrine, good theology, faithful teaching. Right, many of you, uh, many of us perhaps, practice, uh, kind of foam at the mouth when we hear some heresy. Like we're just kind of very excited about it. But we mustn't lose our love for Christ. We mustn't. I want us to be a church that seeks uh, to, to go deep into the riches of the truth of God's word. That's what I want. I don't want a, a shallow uh, church or a superficial church. I don't want us to be satisfied with that. Let's go deep. Let's, let's delve into the riches of God's word. But I want those truths to come home to our hearts uh, in such a way that we're moved to love not just the Bible itself, but the one to whom the Bible points, you see. I want your, you to us to really love Christ to be filled with joy in our relationship with Christ. And so in light of that criticism, Christ uh, gives the church in Ephesus his command. Uh, verse 5 there, he says, uh, Consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things that you did at first. Uh, I've got three commands here, three R's. Remember, repent and repeat. Three commands. Remember, repent and and repeat. First, remember. Right? Consider, Christ says, how far you have fallen. Remember, Christ knows all things and he knows that the Ephesians haven't always been a loveless church. 
Right, he knows that about 30 years before this, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. And in it, he said, For this reason, ever since I've heard about your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. He also said, Grace to all of you, at the end of the letter, uh, who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. The Ephesians used to be known for their love. But in the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul also said, you need to keep building on that love, growing in that love, if you read Ephesians chapter 4. And it seems that they didn't do that. They got off to a great start. And so Christ says, consider how far you have fallen. We don't have a very long history as a church. We've only been around four and a half years. So it's not kind of multiple generations to look back on. But perhaps for those who've been around for a while, uh, you might want to remember, you might want to consider, cast your mind back. And so those early days, do you think our church loves Christ, one another, our city, more now than we did at first? Or have we fallen in some way? But that's Christ's first command, to, to remember, to consider. And his second command flows from that. It's to repent. Repent from where you've fallen. Repent, repentance is making a radical shift. It, it's a complete U-turn. And that's what Christ wants for this church in Ephesus. They've been going down the path of lovelessness for way too long. They've got to repent. They've got to turn their life around, come back to loving Christ, one another, and their city. And maybe we have to do that. Maybe you see areas of, uh, of repentance. Uh, maybe you have to do that. Repent of your heart that's grown cold or hard or, or loveless to, towards Christ. Remember, repent and repeat. Christ says, do the things that you did at first. Repeat it. Like, don't stop serving. Start serving as you did at first. There's not a lot of detail here. I can only assume that it's uh, not being motivated by mere duty or, or sacrifice, but by love. Overflowing love and joy and thankfulness. Right? Remember, repent and repeat. And there's a fourth R, right? But it's not so much a command uh, as a threat. A solemn warning, if you like. Have a look there. Christ says, if you do not repent... I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Right? He's approaching this church and he's saying to them, I'm not going to let you go on in lovelessness forever. There's a limit to that. He's not saying they'll lose their salvation, but he is saying if things don't change, this church in Ephesus will no longer exist. Right here, He will remove their lampstand. That's his right. So remember, Christ walks among his churches. If he determines that a particular church is no longer serving his purposes and, and they repeatedly hear his word and reject his word, he will remove it. And he did remove the church in Ephesus. There's no longer a church there. I don't know, you can, what factors did he use? There's no longer a church there. Next week we'll hear about Smyrna. There is a church in Smyrna still. Make of that what you will. It's a solemn warning though, right? Uh, Christ finishes his letter by reaffirming his commitment to the Ephesians, assuring them, uh, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, to the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Right, that these victorious ones are the ones who, by the power of God's Spirit, have ears that truly hear. Like even tonight, you could hear God's Word in such a way that my voice is just kind of reverberating in your eardrums, or you can hear it in such a way that you trust it and obey it. You live it out. That's what it means. If you truly hear God's Word, if you remember, repent, and repeat, you'll be among those who are victorious and share in the paradise of God, the new heavens and new earth that's described at the end of Revelation. And that's this letter. So I started by by talking about uh, how sad it is uh, that marriages end up being loveless. I'm really thankful that I've never been in a loveless marriage, but I certainly know what it's like for feelings of love to come and go in a marriage. So, So what I do, for what it's worth, if I'm not feeling in love with Gabby... Well, first, let me tell you what I don't do. I don't beat myself up and say, Aaron, Gabby's your wife. You, you should really feel love for her. Like, are you crazy? Like, what? You know? That won't make me love Gabby, right? It'll just fill me with guilt and shame. Well, what I try to do is I remind myself of Gabby's unconditional commitment to me. I remind myself that that she has seen all of my, well, a whole lot at least, of my sin and shame and weakness and and, and all my fragile moments. She's seen all that and yet she loves me and she's committed to me. She keeps giving herself to me over and over again. As I focus on that, it's usually not that long before feelings of love follow. Why is this important? It's very important for how you respond to this sermon. If you uh, fall out of love for Christ, if you recognize in in that in you tonight... If we as a church fall out of love for Christ, what is it that will enable us to rekindle that love? It's not me pulling out a massive stick saying, come on, you're Christians, you're you're the bride of Christ, you ought to love Christ. That won't make you love Christ. The way to recapture your heart for Christ is to fix your eyes on his unconditional commitment to you, to us as his bride. To remember that despite seeing not just a bit, but every last bit of your ugly and shameful sin, even sin that you haven't, you're not even aware of, Christ saw all of that, and yet he loved you and gave himself for you on the cross. If you uh, keep your eyes fixed on his, on, on his unconditional commitment to you, it won't be long before feelings of love follow. So today, perhaps uh, your heart for Christ has grown hard or cold. Maybe you sense a bit of this lovelessness. Uh, let me encourage you to fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on the one who's, uh, committed, who was committed to you all the way to his death on the cross. Uh, because really, it's only if you can imagine a, a little... I should have put a picture up, right? But you can imagine... Uh, you've seen those pictures with a little shoot... Like this is what new love feels like, just a little shoot of new life, of growth. But really, it's only in the soil of Christ's unconditional commitment to you that the shoots of new love keep growing over and over again. So if you want new love, don't pursue feelings of new love. Remind yourself of Christ's unconditional commitment to you and the feelings will come, you see. If you pursue feelings, you'll just feel guilt and shame. That's my experience anyway. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, Christ's letters to these seven churches, and particularly this letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, We pray that we'd be among those uh, who uh, who truly hear these words. 
uh, hear them and, and trust them and obey them. Uh, and particularly tonight, we pray uh, that you would help us to fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who walks among the lampstands, but also who gave of himself for our sake on the cross, uh, despite seeing all our sin. Uh, we pray that uh, as we fix our eyes on him, that uh, those feelings of love and, and commitment to him would follow, uh, both individually and as a church. For his glory we pray. Amen.